Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. Rapid, effective, and sustained, because that's what you want the analgesia to be. Don't assume that they have a low level of pain just because they appear calm. Some people think that the overhydration leads to atelectasis, which are going to in turn lead to more cases of acute chest syndrome. Wouldn't it be great if he had a painometer? The absorption subcutaneously of opioids is much more predictable than the intramuscular route. Certainly hydroxyurea is literally a wonder drug for sickle cell. So I find the most helpful test to do with the CBC is the reticulocyte count. I'm learning so much already. This is unbelievable. (laughs) (laughs) A recent needs assessment completed in Toronto found that emergency providers are undereducated when it comes to the emergency management of sickle cell disease. This became brutally apparent to me personally when I was researching the topic. It turns out that we're not so great at managing these patients. Well, why does this matter? Well, these are high-risk patients. In fact, sickle cell patients are at increased risk for a whole slew of life-threatening problems. One of the many reasons they're vulnerable is because people with sickle cell disease are functionally asplenic, so they're more likely to suffer from serious bacterial infections like meningitis, osteomyelitis, and septic arthritis. For a variety of reasons, they're also more likely than the general population to suffer from cholecystitis, priapism, leg ulcers, avian of the hip, stroke, acute coronary syndromes, pulmonary embolism, acute renal failure, retinopathy, and even sudden exertional death. And often the presentations of some of these conditions are more tricky than usual. Those of you who have been practicing long enough know that sicklers can sometimes present a challenge when it comes to pain management, as it's often difficult to discern whether they're malingering or not. It turns out that we've probably been under-treating sickle cell pain crises and over-diagnosing patients as malingerers. Then there's the sometimes elusive sickle cell-specific catastrophes that we need to be able to pick up in the ED, like splenic sequestration, for example, where prompt recognition and swift treatment are paramount. A benign-looking trivial traumatic eye injury can lead to vision-threatening hyphema in sickle cell patients and can be easy to miss. But don't worry. In this episode, with the help of Dr. Ward and Dr. Foote, we'll deliver the key concepts, pearls, and pitfalls in recognizing some important sickle cell emergencies, managing pain crises, the best fluid management, appropriate use of supplemental oxygen, rational use of transfusions, and more. So welcome, Dr. Ward. Hello. And welcome, Dr. Foote. Welcome back to the program. Happy to be back. Yeah? I'm glad I made the cut. This this is a once a year thing for you? This will be my third time on the show. Third time on the show. Awesome. And Dr. Ward, this is your first time on the program. Yeah, I'm a virgin tonight. So tell us a little bit about your background. So I'm a UK trained hematologist who came over about five years ago to Toronto. And I have a special focus of practice in sickle cell disease. This is really a growing business in Toronto due to the population demographics we have. And really a high needs uh, population that we probably don't serve as well as we can do. So I'm hoping from tonight we will be able to share some experience and some practice and some anecdotes and maybe come away with a better idea about how to approach these patients when they come to emerge. Awesome. So let's jump into our first case. The first case is a 24-year-old man well known to your ED with a long history of sickle cell disease and recurrent pain crises. This is his 23rd visit to your ED and he's complaining of 10 out of 10 non-traumatic low back pain that began that day. He has no limb weakness or change in sensation, no bowel or bladder dysfunction, no recent surgery or instrumentation of the spine, and no history of cancer, IV drug use, or diabetes. He does complain of feeling a bit feverish with chills. His heart rate, blood pressure, and respiratory rate are normal, despite his insistence that he's suffering from severe back pain. His temp is 37.8. On exam, he looks a bit uncomfortable. His GCS is 15. He's alert and oriented. He's got no scleral icterus. RESP and cardiovascular exams are normal. 
His belly is benign with no obvious hepatosplenomegaly. He has no CVA tenderness, but does complain of worsening pain on percussion over his L-spine spinous processes. So Dr. Foote, this patient's been to your hospital 23 times with a chief complaint of pain. Many frequent flyers like this will be labeled right off the bat as drug seekers who are malingering. What does the literature say about drug-seeking behavior in patients with sickle cell disease, and, and how would you handle this in the eMERGE? Anton, I, I think each eMERGE in Toronto has several patients just like this, and we do where I work. And yes, despite our best efforts, I think some people treating patients like this tend to think they are malingering and tend to think they have a hidden agenda. But the evidence of the research would show that if you assume that, you will be wrong 19 times out of 20. And that 95% of the time, these people have a legitimate reason for their pain and should be treated appropriately. The difficulty with some of these patients is in their perception is that they often don't appear to be in obvious distress. Like sometimes they'll be sitting there texting and we're not used to that intuitively we think that means they're not in pain. But I think these people deal with some deal of deal with some degree of chronic pain and, and this is part of their coping mechanism. And their outward appearance does not necessarily reflect the degree of their pain. And uh, I think we routinely underestimate um, their pain needs and um, we routinely undertreat their pain. So I think those are great points, John, and it raises a couple of things I'd like to mention. One is that we actually teach patients from a really young age how to manage their pain. These are children who've been born with the disease. They're going to live with it their whole life. And we try and teach them how they can live with sickle cell not let the sickle cell rule their life. And part of that is they're managing their pain themselves. And so from a very young age, we teach them to use non-pharmacological means to manage their pain. And that used to mean watching a video, chatting to friends on the phone, and nowadays means you know downloading films, using their laptop, texting, messaging their friends. And so the fact that they're not obviously in pain, writhing around in agony, like other patients who do not live with lifelong pain, does not necessarily mean that these patients are malingering. So I, I agree there's been a big issue in the past around us not quite trusting patients when they come to eMERGE, not looking like the average patient in pain. But I think really it's not our job to question their motives for attending. We should treat them in eMERGE. And if you have questions, that's something that gets passed back to their regular treating physician to manage as an outpatient. Okay, so the pitfall there then is that patients may show behavior that emergency physicians consider inconsistent with pain for most of their patients, including, you know, walking around and just talking, having conversations and texting and having a calm appearance. Although they still report these 10 out of 10 levels of pain, don't assume that they have a low level of pain just because they appear calm. Absolutely. And don't assume they're being rude to you because they're not looking at you directly whilst you're talking to them. You know, again, they're trying to distract themselves. I know that some of this interaction and emerge is around maybe a feeling of disrespect on both sides. And again, that might be a misinterpretation of how they're trying to distract themselves from the pain. Oh, interesting. So let's say you've decided this sickler needs pain meds. Dr. Foote, how do you decide how aggressive you're going to be with your analgesics? In other words, how do you figure out how much pain the patient's in besides asking them to rate their pain on a scale of 0 to 10? Do you use vital sign abnormalities to assess pain severity? Do you just use sort of a gestalt of what they look like at the bedside? Or how do you sort out the patient's degree of pain? The only reliable way we have of determining their pain level is their self-reported pain uh, description. And whether that's numeric or otherwise, most of these patients have, as um, Dr. Ward mentioned, have access to um, over-the-counter medication and strong opiates orally. When they come to the emergency room for pain, it's usually because they're in severe pain, and I'm usually going to be reaching for strong opiates. Even though it is counterintuitive, you cannot rely on someone who's in 10 out of 10 pain to have a tachycardia, or to have tachypnea, or to have hypertension, or to be writhing around in pain. In fact, the, the normal situation is that um, patients with acute painful crises have completely normal vital signs. So to rely on that, and to think that somebody with a heart rate of 60, with reporting 10 out of 10 pain, to think that that person or assume that person is malingering or exaggerating their pain would be would be an error. Wouldn't it be great if we had a painometer or a sickleometer that we could just pull out of our pocket and whip in front of the patient and scan them? But it's not possible. There's yeah. no test. There's nothing that's going to tell us if someone's in pain. 
Right. I mean, it's fascinating to think that as emergency physicians, if you've been practicing for a while, we're almost the experts at assessing pain because we see people in pain probably more than anyone else on the planet. Yet in these particular patients, they can really kind of fool us, so to speak, into thinking that they might be malingering when they're actually in pain because all the usual cues that we have just aren't there. So this patient's vital signs and general behavior aren't very helpful to decide how much pain they're in. Dr. Ward, what about blood tests? Is there a blood test you can do to confirm that a patient is truly having a pain crisis? In other words, are there diagnostic criteria for a sickle cell pain crisis? I think the answer to this is the same answer to many things about sickle cell. It's not rocket science. There's really nothing that you can do that's going to give you a firm diagnosis of a sickle crisis. The white count might be slightly high. They might have a slight fever. They might be a slightly more anemic than normal. But at the end of the day, it's very much a clinical diagnosis. And the management is also very much simple clinical measures to manage these patients. So doing a peripheral smear or something, looking for sickle cells, those don't help at all so that's in determining? Not, that's not at all helpful because on a blood film, you're going to see sickle cells, whether someone's sickling or in a steady state condition. Okay. And what about like a drop in hemoglobin? Would that be helpful at all? Well, it's not going to tell you whether someone's having a pain episode or a crisis because there could be many reasons why someone has a drop in hemoglobin. At the end of the day, they can have a medical condition that everyone else can have as well. They could have a GI bleed that's dropping their hemoglobin but isn't causing a crisis. They could have an aplastic episode from a viral infection that's, again, dropped their hemoglobin but not necessarily caused a pain crisis. So, again, we shouldn't go back on to investigations and blood tests. This is very much a clinical decision-making process. So no blood test we can get in the eMERGE is going to tell us whether a patient is in a pain crisis or not. That's right. Okay. Now, there's a lot of things that cause pain out there, and sickle cell pain crisis is really a diagnosis of exclusion. You know, it seems to me that a sickle cell patient in pain presents the ideal setup for a cognitive slip-up. What I mean is, it's easy to assume that the diagnosis is uncomplicated sickle cell pain crisis every time they present with pain. This is a situation in which a cognitive forcing strategy of keeping a wide differential is key so that you don't miss that ruptured viscous or spinal epidural abscess. So again, the, the first key concept here is that a sickle cell pain crisis is a diagnosis of exclusion. The kicker is that when patients complain of a painful episode, regardless of whether it's similar or different to previous episodes they've experienced, we need to actively seek symptoms and signs of other painful conditions as well as non-painful conditions which could be masked by the patient's preoccupation with their pain. When I see a patient who's in emergent pain, there are a few, just a few questions that I ask. First of all, I ask the patient, is this their typical sickle pain crisis pain? And if they say no, you have to take that deadly serious, because these patients are very experienced in their pain, and they can tell you very easily if this pain is something different from normal. Do they have chest pain, but it's not their typical sickle pain? Are we missing a PE? But some or we're missing an acute cholecystitis. So that is, I think, a very useful question to ask. So to listen to the patient, is this their typical pain? Is there anything different about their pain? Just remembering that people with sickle cell, they can get appendicitis. They can have, you know, kidney stones. And um, when they do get these other conditions, because of their suppressed immunity and everything else, they have higher rates of complications of things like appendicitis. There are three sort of paths to the algorithm I work on. One is that this is their typical sickle crisis. Second, that this is another sickle complication that causes pain. An acute chest syndrome, priapism, well, that would hopefully be fairly obvious to you, the <laughs> patient in front of you. Stroke, some avascular necrosis, or say a totally unrelated cause. So that's how I try and assess the patients, looking at those three different categories and ruling them out. That's great. So either it's a classic pain crisis or it's one of the many conditions that I listed at the top of the podcast that sicklers tend to be at high risk for, or it's some condition that they're getting just like anyone else would get. That's right. And that second group's fairly easy because there's a fairly limited number of sickle complications that are going to present acutely. And they're all fairly obvious. So again, priapism is obvious, an acute stroke is obvious, an acute chest syndrome, which we'll probably talk about a bit further should be fairly easy to differentiate. And then if it's a single joint, you're thinking about an avascular necrosis. So it's a fairly short list of sickle differentials. And then you're on to your general medical conditions as well. 
Great. I love that approach. Any other pearls on history? One thing that is quite common that I think I was always taught that there's always got to be a precipitant for their acute bony or painful crises when, in, in fact, the majority of the time there is no obvious precipitant for their acute painful crises. And just because they don't have a cold or they're not a bit dehydrated, there's no obvious precipitant, that shouldn't dissuade you from the fact that they're having a legitimate um, painful crisis. I would actually put psychological stress top of the list as a major precipitant of a pain episode. Hmm. But really, it doesn't affect the way in which you're going to manage the patient unless it's an infection that's precipitated the crisis. It's more useful if you want a social work follow-up prior to discharge from the emergency department. Sure. One other thing to bear in mind is that um, a patient with sickle cell might not look like what you imagine a patient with sickle cell should look like. So I had the resident in clinic with me a few weeks ago who walked into the consult room to see the patient and they walked straight out again. Um, we shared the area with a different clinic and the patient was white. And I just assumed that it was a patient from the other clinic. But in fact, this was a Mediterranean patient who had sickle cell disease. So just because they don't look like you think they should look, black, young, that doesn't mean they don't have sickle cell. And we've seen this, we've heard of it several times, that patients being turned away from a merge. You can't possibly have sickle cell because you're not black. This is a disease that can affect patients from Africa, from the Caribbean. You also have a large number of patients from the Middle East, from South America, and from the Mediterranean region as well. Genotypically, they might be a little bit different with their sickle cell, but they still have sickle cell disease, and they can still have pain episodes. When it comes specifically to the pain, we had talked a little bit about asking them whether their pain is different from before, and then to suspect maybe something else going on if they say that it's different. What other things do you want to know about their pain and how they control the pain in your history with the sickler? So there's been a very nice description of the pain crisis by Samir Balas, who's one of the gurus of sickle cell in the States, who really very nicely describes that there's a prodrome of a day or two where they're at home coping with the pain with their oral medication, and then the pain gets out of control. They hit a merge, and then you're on a steep upward curve in terms of your pain score that then gets out of control and takes about five to seven days to settle down afterwards. And we know from data that the average admission for a pain episode is about seven days in Canada. It's less than the States because of the healthcare coverage there. So what's always good to know is what they've used prior to coming to the emergency department. There are some patients who, you might think this is weird, might just have taken an Advil or a Tylenol and then hit a merge. There are other patients who would have taken maybe eight milligrams of hydromorphone every hour at home. And quite clearly, you're going to manage those two patients very different in terms of whether opiate-naive or opiate-tolerant. So I think to have an idea about the tolerance for opiates and what dose they're going to need to control the pain is very important. Patients will often have a cocktail that works for them. We, we know so little about pain and the physiology behind pain and how some patients respond differently to others, but it's always good to ask, what worked for you last time? What do you find usually works for you in terms of your analgesia requirement? And then some patients who might be on chronic opiates at home, there's then the thing about what, how you should dose adjust for that. And probably a rule of thumb is to maybe just double that baseline as a good starting point. We've mentioned this briefly already, but I think the problem is really underdosing rather than overdosing these patients with regards to analgesia. And then getting a very good pain assessment on a regular basis. So this is where it's not rocket science. It's just very basic clinical medicine getting a pain score each time, and also a distribution of the pain. So although the pain score may be unchanged, the fact that the distribution of the pain is lessened knows that you're making some progress and winning with the analgesia. In review, I'd like to give you some key pitfalls when it comes to assessing the sickle cell patient who presents with pain. Let's start with the first second that you walk into the room. What does the patient look like? So the first pitfall is to assume that a patient can't have sickle cell disease just because they aren't African-American. Sickle cell disease has been described in all races and should no longer be considered exclusive to black people. The second pitfall happens when you take a look at the vital signs. Assuming that normal vital signs means that the patient has low levels of pain or is malingering, that's the pitfall. Vital sign abnormalities are uncommon with a sickle cell pain crisis, 
So don't rely on them to help you decide if a patient is in the throes of a pain crisis or not. So you've looked at the color of the patient's skin. You've looked at the vital signs. What about their behavior? The third pitfall is assuming that a patient who appears calm and not looking you in the eye is a drug seeker or has low levels of pain. Patients could be walking around, engaging in conversations, or texting calmly, although they still report 10 out of 10 pain. So don't assume low levels of pain in patients who appear calm. Now, what about blood tests to help decide whether a sickler is in pain crisis or not? Again, the pitfall is thinking that a blood test will help. Performing a peripheral smear to look for sickle cells will not yield any information about whether the patient is in crisis, nor will any other readily available laboratory test. And one final pearl when it comes to initial treatment. A general rule of thumb for dosing opiates for these patients is to double their usual opiate dose that they're using at home. Next, Dr. Ward's going to explain the importance of hydroxyurea in preventing recurrent pain crises in sickle cell disease. When you see a patient like this, who's been to your ED 23 times for pain crisis, you should start thinking about hydroxyurea as prophylaxis for return pain crisis visits. So certainly hydroxyurea is literally a wonder drug for sickle cell. And many sickle cell specialists across North America would say that every patient should be on it. It can have a dramatic impact on patients' quality of life, reduction in morbidity, and has now been shown to be a survival benefit in three independent studies. So this is a drug that can potentially revolutionize the quality of life for our patients. And for the one that's in this case, you know, he will lose his frequent flyer card. It's been shown to reduce your pain episodes, your need to go to eMERGE, your need to be admitted, your need to have blood transfusions. So all of these factors that impact on both the healthcare system and also on the ability of the patient to function on a day-to-day basis can be totally turned around by hydroxyurea. It has a slightly bad name. It's been around for over 100 years, and it has been used to treat some precancerous blood conditions. And so there's a myth out there that it itself can cause cancer. It's a pill that they just take once a day, very, very easy, very minimal side effects, needs monitoring when you first start on the drug, but otherwise it's very easy to take. And if we have patients who are coming to eMERGE and are not hooked up to a sickle cell clinic or a hematologist, they should be, if only, to be educated and to discuss the role of hydroxyurea in their management. I guess I'm not implying that we should be initiating this prescription in the emergency department, but I think we should be potentially planting the seed for these patients if they're not already um, had heard about this medication or um, at least point them in the direction of a a hematologist or a sickle cell clinic that um, can have some familiarity with prescribing this medication. I tend to be a guy who remembers things when I understand how they work. My understanding with hydroxyurea is that it increases your production of fetal hemoglobin and so that there's less percentage of sickle hemoglobin and makes you less likely, I guess, to have sickle crises. But the main reason I don't want you to start it and emerge is because this is potentially lifelong treatment for patients. And so you really have to get them adherent and on board and engaged in this process. And what we found is if you try and rush them into making the decision, they'll take it for a week or they won't fill the prescription at all. So it's much better that you sow the seeds in eMERGE and say, we've got this wonder drug that can help you prevent you having to come back to eMERGE again. Let's send you off to a hematologist who can explain it to you and run through all the benefits and the side effects. I think that's a much more effective role for you in eMERGE. Great. One of the things that sometimes I get confused with when I'm taking a history from a sickle cell patient is they tell me that they're hemoglobin SC or they tell me that they're sickle beta thalassemia. And I have to kind of scratch my head and figure out, well, what, what does that actually imply clinically what I'm going to be doing with this patient? Can you just go over for us what the difference in approach is to the full-blown hemoglobin SS sickle cell patient compared to the hemoglobin SC patient or the sickle beta thalassemia patient? So very quickly, like a genetics 101 of sickle cell. So you have two beta globin genes that can potentially express the sickle mutation. If you have one normal gene and one sickle gene, you have sickle cell trait, which for all intents and purposes is asymptomatic with a few minor exceptions. 
if you have both of those genes mutated with the sickle mutation, you have SS, and that's a severe form of sickle cell. If you have one of those genes mutated with the sickle gene and the other with the thalassemia gene, that can potentially cause something as severe as SS. So this is S beta thalassemia. So the S beta thalassemia, we should be treating basically the same as as the full-blown SS. It gets complicated because thalassemia is a problem with the amount that you produce from the gene, but what you're making is normal product. So if you have a sickle gene and you have a thalassemia gene and there's nothing coming from that second thalassemia gene, everything is coming from that sickle gene. And those patients are as severe as the SS patients because all they can produce is that sickle. If they have one sickle gene and one less severe thalassemia gene that's still making a little bit of normal blood, they're less severe. And we call that S-beta plus thalassemia. And they're less affected. And then the third group of patients are patients who have one sickle gene and one C gene, and that's the SC disease. And that's also slightly less severe than SS. But all of these genotypes of sickle cell cause pain episodes, cause complications. Just some of the nuances of the complications can be a bit different between them. Okay, and are there any nuances of the complications that emergency doctors should know about in terms of true emergencies and how we would manage them differently in the first few hours? Yeah, so I think there are two things to take away. One is the SC population. So they're typically from West Africa because genetically that's where the mutation arose they are more likely to have retinopathy, so be at higher risk for retinal detachment, and they're more likely to have avascular necrosis of the shoulders or hips. So if someone comes in and they proclaim they have SC disease and they have localized pain in a shoulder or a hip, you're automatically going to think, could this be avascular necrosis? If it's an acute pain, have they fractured through a bad joint? The other thing that's slightly different is when you send off all your blood tests, which aren't going to help you at all, their hemoglobin level is going to be much higher than someone with SS. So someone with SS sickle cell, their hemoglobin is usually 60 to 80 in that ballpark. Someone with SC, their hemoglobin is usually 110 or higher. So they have a much higher baseline hemoglobin level. Got it. I'm learning so much already. This is unbelievable. (laughs) (laughs) So we've talked about the history. We've talked about how to assess their history of pain. We've talked about the importance of hydroxyurea. We've talked about some differences between SS and SC and S thalassemia. Now let's go on to the physical exam. What do you look for on the physical exam in patients with sickle cell disease in particular, besides the usual symptom-guided physical you do on a patient complaining of pain in a particular part of the body? Anton, on the physical examination, With these patients, I don't think it has to be overtly exhaustive. The main things that we'd be looking for would be trying to rule out an acute infection. And second would be to make sure there's no no acute chest crisis. Most of the other issues are going to be fairly obvious by history and and um, you'll be able to focus in on on the physical examination. So the main main points are not to miss um, acute infection on physical exam and not to miss acute chest crisis. Having a good look at skin and soft tissues for signs of cellulitis, look at the joints. If, if they are complaining of pain, um, make sure there's no septic joint or osteomyelitis on physical examination. As far as the ruling of acute chest crisis, you should be listening to see if there are grackles, rattles, if they're hypoxic, if there's some respiratory distress. And then finally, if they did have um, complaints of abdominal pain or did have hypotension, signs of hepatosplenomegaly, and which could indicate sequestration. So we've talked about the history. We've talked about the physical. Let's move on to the workup. Let's go back to the case. We've got a 24-year-old sickler with severe low back pain and kind of a borderline fever. He's given some morphine and his hemoglobin comes back and it's 110 So this patient has an almost normal hemoglobin. Dr. Ward, is there a correlation between the degree of anemia and the likelihood of developing a pain crisis or the severity of the pain crisis? Or what does the hemoglobin tell you when you have a patient in front of you who's having a pain crisis? Not very much. 
So one thing is always to put it into context. So what you want to know from the patient is what their baseline hemoglobin is. If their baseline is 60 and the result comes back at 60, you know everything's great. If the baseline is 110 and it comes back at 60, you know there's some major problem going on. So you always got to put it in the context of what's their normal. And remember, their normal is going to be very different from the other 99% of patients you're seeing that day in eMERGE. I think that's important to keep in mind. Now, paradoxically, a high hemoglobin can actually be bad for your sickle. So one of the main mechanisms of the disease in sickle cell is this vasoocclusion, this stickiness of the sickle red cells with the platelets, the white cells, your activated endothelium, causing blockage of blood flow through the microcirculation. Now, if you have a higher hemoglobin level and a higher content of sickle in your blood, you're going to make that vasoocclusion worse. And we do see this with some patients who run a higher hemoglobin than we would expect. They do often get more pain episodes. And one treatment for that is actually to do therapeutic phlebotomy to reduce their hemoglobin. So let me get this straight. The higher the hemoglobin, the more likely they are to have a vasoocclusive crisis. Possibly, yeah. And that sounds so counterintuitive, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Okay. So the hemoglobin's not going to help you very much unless it's vastly different than their baseline. What about other lab tests? What other lab tests besides a hemoglobin should we be ordering for the sickle cell patient who comes in with a vasoocclusive crisis? For the treatment and management of a painful crisis, I don't think there are any routine lab tests to be ordering on these patients. If they have stable vitals and they look well, you're not worried about infection. Most of the patients I will find will be reluctant to even want to have blood work done um, since they do have it fairly frequently. I don't, we don't routinely do hemo, even hemoglobins on all these patients who come in with acute painful crises, provided they are uncomplicated and they look stable. It's interesting because let's say you took that same patient, but not an eMERGE at home, calling their hematologist, saying they're in pain, can you send me a prescription for analgesia? You wouldn't send them a rec to get blood work done. You'd just send them the analgesia. So what's different about them hitting eMERGE with their pain episode? It's not going to help you much if it's an uncomplicated pain episode. If you're working in a center where you don't frequently see sickle cell disease, you're probably much safer to order a routine battery of CBC, electrolytes, liver function, because a lot of this depends on your gestalt opinion and your experience of managing these patients. And so if your exposure to sickle cell disease is less, if you're working in a rural or a different ethnic mixed population, you're probably not unreasonable to order a battery of basic screening tests. I think one of the most neglected hematology blood tests there is Reticulocyte. Absolutely, John. It's the reticulocyte count. It is not just in sickle cell, but generally working up in anemia. It is so valuable to tell you whether you're going down the marrow failure route or the peripheral destruction route. And really the question in sickle cell with the hemoglobin is, is this patient hemolyzing, which you expect to happen with a pain episode, or is there a plastic crisis? Have they got parvovirus or some other virus that shut down the marrow? Because again, a treatment algorithm you're going to go down is going to be a bit different. So I find the most helpful test to do with the CBC is the reticulocyte count. Now, what about kidney dysfunction? My understanding is that a lot of these sicklers have kidney dysfunction because they're infarcting their kidneys all the time. Uh, what do we need to know about kidney dysfunction in, in sicklers? So I think in the management of an acute pain episode, we all worry about them becoming dehydrated because we know that dehydration is one of those triggers that can precipitate a pain episode. And this is somewhat complicated because we also know that the vast majority of patients with sickle cell have a concentrating defect. They're unable to concentrate the urine sufficiently. And so the temptation is to pump them full of fluids to try and counteract that. The other slight nuance with sickle cell is that a lot of them have hyperfiltration and their creatinine will be very, very low. So if you see someone with sickle cell who has a high normal or high creatinine, that is actually very unusual for someone with sickle cell and should raise alarm bells because their creatinine should be well down within the lower end of the normal range. So if you do have a patient who comes in in a pain crisis and your nurses have just automatically ordered routine blood work, which includes a CBC and creatinine lights, and their creatinine happens to be high normal or high, you know that 
they've got some serious renal problem because normally their their creatinines are pretty low. Yeah. Got it. All right. So that's enough about the blood work. The bottom line, I guess, with blood work is that it's it's rarely that helpful in a patient who's just presenting with a pain crisis that they've had before. Um, that really we need to look carefully at the blood work when we suspect that there's sepsis or splenic sequestration or something else that's going on. Uh, and if we are going to order blood work, it's really the hemoglobin we want to look at and the reticulocyte count. Let's move on to how to treat this patient's pain. So you've got this guy who rates his pain 10 out of 10. You believe he's suffering from a sickle cell crisis. We know that as a group, ED docs undertreat pain in sicklers. Dr. Foote, what are the most effective pain management strategies for sicklers who are in crisis? The patients who come to the eMERGE with acute painful crises, I've usually tried managing their pain at home with acetaminophen or non-steroidal anti-inflammatories or their own prescribed opiates. So I usually will start with parenteral um, narcotics. I, I know that there are protocols and recommendations written for continuous morphine infusions and patient-controlled anesthesia pumps, but these are all a little bit more complicated to set up in eMERGE and they're not available widely. I do think we have experience in eMERGE with treating acute pain aggressively in certain patients such as kidney stone, patients with kidney stones. And I treat my sickle cell patients in a very similar fashion, which is high-dose, strong opioids intravenously on a frequent basis. Hydromorphone or morphine intravenously and then repeat every 15 minutes to 30 minutes until their pain score is decreased by at least 2 of 10. The hydromorphone um, dose I usually use for adults is 1 to 2 milligrams intravenously. The morphine dose I would usually use is 6 to 12 milligrams um, intravenously of morphine. Of course, these doses will change a little bit depending on whether they're opioid naive or whether they have some opioid exposure or tolerance from their usual medications. I think there are three key words. There's rapid effective and sustained because that's what you want the analgesia to be and how you do that really does not matter and it'll be very much dependent on what your practice is in your emergency department we have a little bit of data from sickle cell studies suggesting that one protocol might be better than another but really the data is quite poor so i totally agree with you john that we should use what our emergency department is good at doing and what they're comfortable with and experienced in, because that's what's going to end up being administered effectively in a sustained manner and rapidly, and that's what patients need. Okay, so we're talking pretty big doses, 1 to 2 milligrams of hydromorph, 6 to 12 milligrams of morphine in rapid succession. So we're not giving them one dose of morphine and then coming back three hours later. We're giving them morphine, and then if they need it, another 15 or 30 minutes later, we're giving another dose, just as big a dose, eh? Correct. Okay, so so aggressive. Now, what about NSAIDs? My understanding is that we should be using NSAIDs sparingly in sickle cell disease because, like I was saying before, a lot of them have kidney dysfunction. What's your take on the use of NSAIDs in sickle cell disease? I understand that it's also quite effective as an adjunct to the opiates for pain control. Should we be using NSAIDs in the eMERGE? Should we be giving patients a script for NSAIDs when they go home? What's your take on NSAIDs for sickle cell crises? I think one of the things we have learned from our sickle mice is that sickle pain is complex. And what we are moving towards now is multimodal analgesia. So the opiates alone is probably not enough. There's no harm in giving Tylenol. We don't know how effective it is in sickle cell, but we know it's an opiate-sparing drug potentially in other causes of pain. And we do routinely give an anti-inflammatory agent because there's a huge inflammatory component to sickle pain. And you sometimes see that clinically with a swollen, warm joint that might look like an infection, but it's not. It's just a, an area of sickling. So definitely a thumbs up to NSAIDs. There are very few patients who actually have significant renal disease. Most of them have very early stage. And a short course for a few days of an NSAID is not going to make a huge difference to their renal function, but could have a big impact on their pain control. Now, oh, well, so we're talking about multimodal analgesia, we're also starting to use other agents as well, both acutely and chronically. Drugs such as gabapentin, pregabalin, drugs that are used by neurologists to try and manage acute and chronic pain. 
On our most recent Journal Jam podcast, we discussed low-dose ketamine for analgesia, and in particular, we did talk about the indication of a sickle cell crisis to use this as an opioid-sparing agent. So if you are in the situation where you have a sickler who's in a pain crisis and you're using massive doses of opioids and you're not getting anywhere, consider trying 20 milligrams or so of ketamine over two to five minutes and repeating as necessary, Q 30 minutes. Now, this happens all too often is we try and get IV access for these patients to give them their morphine, to give them their hydromorph, to give them their toradol, and we can't get IV access. If you can't get IV access, what are the preferred alternate routes to give your medications? I would pick subcutaneous injection over um, intramuscular injection um, if you cannot get an IV. The absorption subcutaneously of opioids is much more predictable than the intramuscular route, and the intramuscular route is frankly more painful to administer. So the main point would be if you cannot get an IV, go sub-Q or oral even over IM. I think this goes back to the rapid part of rapid, sustained, and effective. I don't think the, the route really matters at all. You just want to get it in and get it in early. I worked in a centre in London where we didn't have any IV medications. We used fentanyl lozenges or buccal fentanyl to give very immediate effective analgesia as their first dose. And then that gives you a bit of time to buy either IV access or to get a sub-Q in. So there are measures we can take that don't necessarily involve the IV route. And I totally agree that sub-Q is always better than intramuscular. And if you're struggling with an IV or if the patient comes in and they declare to you, I have terrible veins, don't even bother with the IV. Go with the sub-Q route off the bat get the pain under control for an hour, and then try the IV after that. So now that we've got a pretty good idea of how to control the pain of the sickler, the next thing is the supportive measures for the sickler in crisis, oxygen, fluids, that sort of thing. Now, when I started practicing, I was taught that all sicklers in crisis should be getting oxygen with the mass cranked up to 15 liters, and they should get a couple liters of saline bolus up front. I now understand that this is bad practice. Let's start with oxygen. Dr. Ward, which sicklers require supplemental oxygen? So I think there are two groups of patients. There's a group of patients who feel comfort from having oxygen, even though their oxygen saturations might be 98% and acceptable to us. And those patients say, I really don't think there's any harm in giving them a couple of liters by nasal prong. Now, those patients who have hypoxia on pulse oximetry and clearly do need supplemental oxygen administered to be effective medically rather than just for homeopathic or for comfort measures. And what about the idea that supplemental O2 is thought to actually suppress bone marrow, that it's actually myelosuppressive and that it may even increase transfusion requirements? Studies of the experience now would indicate that supplemental oxygen is not necessary for the vast majority of patients unless they're frankly hypoxic and that large amounts of intravenous saline and fluids in general intravenously can be actually harmful to these patients. So Dr. Foote, you had mentioned that we used to give tons of fluid and that maybe we shouldn't be giving so much fluid. Let's talk a little bit more about fluid. We had mentioned that dehydration can be a trigger for a sickle cell pain crisis and that we used to practice giving liters and liters of fluid up front. What's changed? How should we be thinking about fluid management in sickle cell patients in crisis? Anton, I think that we tend to overhydrate our sickle cell patients when they come to the emergency room. Unless they're frankly hypovolemic or dehydrated or septic, we shouldn't be giving them large crystalloid boluses. In fact, maintenance IVs with actually hypotonic um, solutions seems to be the preferred solution for these patients. We know that normal saline can cause a hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis. That's been well described and that that theoretically may increase um, sickling in these patients. So not using saline or using Ringer's lactate, if you have to use a crystalloid, some people are talking about that as being the, the fluid of choice for the truly hypotensive patients. In addition, some lab studies have shown that um, cycline can increase when, when it, hypertonic fluids or isotonic fluids are administered as opposed to hypotonic solutions. 
most of the literature now is recommending the intravenous fluid of choice for these patients would be at maintenance and to use a hypotonic solution such as a D5 half-normal saline or two-thirds and a third, which, as you know, is one-third normal saline and two-thirds D5W. I think what's striking for me when I see these patients in hospital is how young they are, but how quickly they go into a bit of pulmonary edema. And I almost routinely end up prescribing some frusamide the next morning to them, which usually just improves their oxygenation that bit more to make you comfortable. So I think we definitely need to dampen down on how aggressive we are with the volume of fluid we give as well. We think they have some sort of vascular leak syndrome. There's a lot of endothelial dysfunction and possibly the opiates also contribute to that. So there's nothing wrong with giving a small bolus when they present to emerge, but after that it really should be maintenance and no more than maintenance. Okay, so suffice to say that for those patients who are obviously hypovolemic or septic, we're going to be giving our boluses. Maybe we might choose ringer's lactate instead of normal saline. Uh, but for the vast majority of these patients, they're not going to be hypovolemic, and we can just start them on maintenance fluids, two-thirds, one-third, or half-normal saline. And the reason is is because if we're giving them massive boluses up front, uh, this may actually promote sickling by causing metabolic acidosis, and often they'll go into pulmonary edema if we're giving them too much fluid. Some people think that the overhydration leads to atelectasis, which are going to in turn lead to more cases of acute chest syndrome. Wow. So three good reasons why we shouldn't be giving huge boluses of, uh, of normal saline up front. Now, we had talked about getting a hemoglobin in the patient with a sickle cell crisis, some of these sicklers will have severe anemia in the eMERGE, hemoglobins of 60, 50, 40. Dr. Ward, what are the indications for a red cell transfusion in patients who come in with a sickle cell crisis? So for a patient coming in with a pain episode that's uncomplicated, there is no indication. So we'll be happy with a hemoglobin of 60, 50. At 40, we would consider transfusing someone. But someone with a hemoglobin a little bit below baseline with just pain, there is absolutely no indication to give them a transfusion. And the reason is that they have a high rate of alloimmunization, of developing antibodies to the transfused blood and potentially be untransfusable in the future when they really need blood. So transfusion for sickle cell pain episode is a big no-no. So this is consistent with all the other literature out there in things like sepsis and GI bleeds where we're transfusing less and less at, at lower and lower hemoglobins. So let's say their baseline hemoglobin is 70 and you give them two, three units of blood and the hemoglobin goes up to 100. You're going to make them hyperviscous and actually probably going to make their pain episode much, much worse and cause their length of stay to be much longer in hospital. So blood isn't only not helpful, it can actually be detrimental to the patient with an uncomplicated pain episode. Wow, so there's two really good reasons why we should not be giving red cell transfusions to patients with sickle cell disease in crisis. Even when their hemoglobins are 70, 60, 50, one is that they're at increased risk for alloimmunization and then running to big troubles later when they really do need a transfusion. And the other is that uh, it actually might make their pain syndrome worse by increasing the viscosity of blood. Absolutely. I think the take-home message is if you have a patient with sickle cell, transfusion is very special. To the extent that in our institution, the blood bank will not release blood for a sickle cell patient unless the hematologist has given the okay. So we've talked about pain control, we've talked about oxygen, we've talked about fluids, we've talked about not giving red cell transfusions. What about steroids? I mean, I've seen some people use steroids in patients with sickle cell crisis, thinking that it's going to help their pain and decrease the inflammation. Uh, what's your take on the role of steroids in patients with sickle cell crisis? So that's something we used to do for exactly these reasons. But what we found is that you actually cause a rebound increase in pain when a steroid is stopped. And I just had this last week, actually, when I was contacted by a community physician who had given a course of steroids 
initially settled down and it rebounded. Naturally, there's good literature to show that patients will be readmitted following discharge if they receive the course of steroids for this reason. So we've moved away from giving steroids acutely. So in the old days, we used to give huge amounts of fluid up front. We used to give tons of oxygen, no matter what their SAD is. We used to undertreat their pain and we used to give steroids. Now everything's changed. We should be treating their pain aggressively with opiates, short courses of NSAIDs. We should be giving oxygen really only to those patients who are hypoxic. We should be judicious with our fluid boluses unless they're obviously hypovolemic and using hypotonic fluids. And we should avoid red cell transfusions and steroids for the vast majority of these patients. That sounds like the perfect recipe for managing sickle cell pain episodes. So getting back to the case again, this patient was given his morphine every 15 minutes until the pain resolved. He had no supplemental O2. He had IV half normal saline at maintenance running. Now, this sickle cell disease patient had a borderline fever along with their back pain. Let's talk a little bit more about the importance uh, and the significance of a fever in the sickler. How should we approach the patient with sickle cell disease who has a fever differently to the general population? Anton, we, we did mention that these patients are functionally asplenic, and I believe that happens from the, even the age of one. And these patients are very similar to a lot of other patients that we see that are immunocompromised in the emergency room. And likewise, when we're, when we're treating, assessing these patients who are immunocompromised with fever, we should be having a low th- threshold to do, to do um, a septic workup and initiate empiric antibiotics. So patients who are on transplant drugs, high-dose immunosuppressants like prednisone, um, I think the sickle cell patient with a fever should be thought of in the same way as these patients. And um, they should have, you should have a low threshold to be doing blood cultures on these patients, low threshold to be initiating um, empiric antibiotics on these patients if they have fever. I think for my pediatric colleagues, this is a huge issue for them. To the extent that they will tell mom or dad of a child with sickle cell disease, you have a fever, you go straight to eMERGE. And you tell them, my child has sickle cell, my child has a fever, I need antibiotics in 30 minutes or you're going to kill my child. It's that important, particularly in children who have a reduced capacity to tolerate septic shock compared to an adult. But it also applies to adults. You must take fever in someone's sickle cell incredibly seriously, do the septic workup, give antibiotics empirically. Now, the reason why I assist as an adult hematologist looking after sickle cell is that there's been a huge reduction a number of children who are dying from their sickle cell in childhood. And that's primarily because of infection. In the past, infection was the number one killer of children with sickle cell disease. And because of prophylactic antibiotics and vaccination, that's not happening anymore. But we still need to be hypervigilant when a patient presents acutely with sickle cell and a fever and take it very seriously. Unfortunately, every year I hear from my pediatric colleagues about a child who hasn't been taken seriously and has been discharged from eMERGE without antibiotics with a fever, and has then passed away at home. So really the take-home message is sickle cell, fever, antibiotics, septic screen is mandatory. Let's do the case resolution now. So the combination of fever, out-of-proportion tenderness over the spinous processes combined with an ESR of 110, triggered the astute ED doc to get a CT of the L-spine, which showed obvious signs of osteomyelitis. He was started on broad-spectrum antibiotics and admitted to the internal medicine service. The next day, he had an MRI, which showed no spinal epidural abscess, and his ESR came down slowly but surely during the hospital stay. He was discharged from hospital on IV antibiotics a week later and did well. Before we wrap it up with our key points from this episode, we did talk a little bit more with Dr. Ward and Dr. Foote about sickle cell disease. In particular, we talked about splenic sequestration, aplastic crisis, acute chest syndrome, stroke, and TIA. 
So I'm going to direct you to the website, emergencymedicinecases.com, where we'll have a wicked awesome summary of those particular diagnoses, the key pearls and pitfalls, and how to manage them. And now for the wrap-up. Sickle cell pain crisis is a diagnosis of exclusion. We need to keep the differential wide with special attention to infection, especially osteomyelitis, septic arthritis, and meningitis. We can be really tricky in these patients. Also, acute chest syndrome and splenic sequestration, as well as all the usual diagnoses that a non-sickler might have. Avoid anchoring on the pain crisis diagnosis. Remember that pain in a patient with sickle cell disease does not rule out appendicitis. Now, what about the clinical exam? The usual clues we garner to help us figure out how much pain a patient's suffering from are often absent in sicklers, starting with the patient's appearance. They might look calm and comfortable, be engaging in conversations, or trying to distract themselves on their phone, even though they report 9 or 10 out of 10 pain. And when it comes to appearance, not all patients with sickle cell disease are black. Sickle cell disease has been described in all races and should no longer be considered exclusive to African Americans. Then there's the vital signs. Most patients with a sickle cell pain crisis won't exhibit vital sign abnormalities. A sickler with normal vital signs may be suffering from a great deal of pain. Next are the lab tests. Do they help us decide if a sickle cell patient is suffering from a crisis? Absolutely not. In the uncomplicated patient, lab tests probably aren't necessary at all. And if you do order a hemoglobin and retic count, which are really all you need for the patient in a pain crisis, don't let a normal hemoglobin convince you that the patient is not in crisis. In fact, patients with normal or high hemoglobins are more likely to have pain, as well as other vaso-occlusive badness like stroke and acute chest syndrome. Now let's move on to treatment. Forget about the old 100% O2, huge crystalloid boluses, Demerol, and steroids of the old days. In 2015, first, we got to think about supplemental O2 and when it's really needed. Supplemental O2 should only really be given to patients who are hypoxic because O2 has never been shown to improve outcomes and may theoretically lead to myelosuppression and maybe even increased transfusion requirements. The same can be said for fluids. Fluid boluses with Ringer's lactate are only necessary in the patient who's hypotensive, which should make you think of alternative diagnoses besides an uncomplicated pain crisis anyways. Just because hydration can trigger a pain crisis doesn't mean you need to flood every patient with fluid who's in pain. So for the -the run-of-the-mill pain crisis, use hypotonic fluid like two-thirds, one-third, or D5 half-normal saline at maintenance. That's it. Now what about pain control? A nice way to think about treating pain in these kinds of patients are to think of it as similar to how you treat a renal colic patient. That is, aggressive with a combination of opioids and NSAIDs like hydromorphine or morphine plus toradol IV. And if you can't get an IV started, then the sub-Q route is preferred over the IM route. Now, what about the dose? You want to be starting with 1 or 2 milligrams of hydromorph or 6 to 12 milligrams of morphine. But for patients who are on opiates at home, you should base your IV or sub-Q opioid dose on the total daily short-acting opioid dose currently being taken at home to manage the crisis. Reassess pain and give opioids if necessary for pain every 15 to 30 minutes until the pain is under control. If you're getting into huge opioid doses that are causing unwanted side effects, consider low-dose IV ketamine analgesia. Remember that while NSAIDs have been shown to be effective in sickle cell patients, they aren't recommended for long-term use because of their potential renal side effects. Don't forget that a normal or high creatinine in a sickler usually indicates moderate to severe renal dysfunction a sickler will normally have a low creatinine. Finally, steroids, while they may reduce pain scores initially, have a high rate of pain recurrence and readmission and are not recommended by our experts. 
Well, that's about it on sickle cell pain crisis. For some golden nuggets on the challenging diagnoses of acute chest syndrome, splenic sequestration, and more, check out emergencymedicinecases.com. Until next time, when you'll hear airway guru Rich Levitan's best case ever, take it easy. (laughs) 